Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sarah, and today, rather than chatting to Helen, you're going to hear me in conversation with another Sarah. And this is the second in our Ideas to Inspire mini-series, where really we've just used this as an excuse to invite people who've really inspired us onto the podcast and gives us free reign to chat to some people who we think you'd all really benefit from learning from and listening to, and we know that certainly we will. So let me just tell you a bit about Sarah and what we're going to talk about before we dive into today's episode. So Sarah Stein Greenberg is the executive director of Stanford Design School and the author of a book called Creative Acts for Curious People. I read the book and contacted Sarah directly because it just really stood out to me for a few reasons. It's not like many of the books that I've spent time reading. The first one is it's a book full of exercises, examples and practical tips. That sort of is the essence of the book. So no surprise probably that it appealed to us because it felt very aligned with our approach to career development in terms of trying to share things that you can use and that will be useful in your work regardless of what career you're in or how experienced you are. Secondly, I love the fact that the book features lots of different people's work. So I felt like what Sarah has essentially done through the book is not only shared her own wisdom and insights, but she's also opened up all of her connections and collaborators for us to all learn from. There's so much variety in the book. So even if one exercise isn't quite right for you, the next one might feel really relevant. So I really liked the going in different directions in the book and every exercise every technique felt like it offered something different and the third thing which is a really personal thing is I love the design of the book it was really refreshing to spend time with a book where it's a bit bigger than your average book there's loads of illustration it's very well designed I guess no surprise given Sarah is the director at the design school so it feels like a very different kind of book it feels a bit like we've tried to do with you coach you that you could pick that book up and open it in the middle and find something useful. You could open it three quarters of the way through. So it feels in lots of ways very accessible. Even though there's lots in there, you could open it at any point and I think just read a page or a couple of pages and keep coming back to it. And I always talk about the books that will have a permanent place on my bookshelf. And I don't think that book will be ever going anywhere because it's already provided me inspiration for things like our team days. I've recommended it to lots of people who are facilitating maybe different groups or different projects where you want to get to know each other quite quickly. So in today's episode, you're going to hear Sarah bring to life lots of those exercises so you can get a feel for things that you could try out, which ones you might like to have a go at. I would hope there'll be something for everyone in today's episode. 
I really hope you enjoy listening and I'll be back at the end to let you know what's coming up towards the end of the year. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today on the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation together. Me too, Sarah. It's so great to meet you and to be here with all your listeners. So I wanted to dive straight in with this idea of creativity, because in your book, Creative Acts for Curious People, you say everyone is creative and everyone can use design to improve the world around them. And I think we all love that as a philosophy and as a sentiment, but it can feel quite far from our day to day. So what do you think maybe stops us or what are some of the barriers that stop us being as creative as we all can be and and could be? Yeah, I mean, I really resonate with your description of like, that sounds like a beautiful dream, right? <laughs> this beautiful philosophy. But I have to say, I really, really mean that absolutely literally that every single human being is creative. We are naturally born to be problem solvers and to notice things that are around us that could be improved or that we want to improve and change. I think we have a couple of myths in our society that do get in the way. One of those is just this terrible myth that like, you're not creative if you can't draw. So that's one myth I would love to see dissipate. I think another thing that can get in our way, particularly in organizations, is bureaucracy, right? So I don't know how many of you have read the wonderful, wonderful short book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball by um, a guy named Gordon McKenzie, who used to be at Hallmark at a greeting card company in the U.S., And anyway, he wrote this brilliant little book that is about how companies become bureaucratic and how bureaucracy is really this kind of gravitational pull in which you kind of normalize that the processes and the policies and the way things have always been done somehow is also the formula for success in the future. And that is just not often true. If an organization is going to continue to evolve and improve and meet new market demands and change with the times, actually, some of those rules may have to change over time. And, you know, we are all living through a time when we're learning that, you know, on a daily basis. So being able to escape that gravitational pull and really recognize that, you know, when you're kind of blindly following all of the rules that have been constructed that are really about how things have worked well in the past, sometimes that is actually holding back creativity and innovation within a company. We've actually just written a piece for Harvard Business Review about learning, unlearning and relearning. And I thought there you just did a brilliant job of describing unlearning of that idea of sometimes recognising what we've got to let go of to be able to move forward and to not hold on to things too tight just because that's how they've been done before. So I think those, as you say, I think most of us recognise both of those things at the same time. We think, first of all, perhaps we label ourselves in an unhelpful way because we do think, I can't draw, I'm not creative. Or to your point, maybe comparison also holds us back because I think we all know someone who we think is more creative than we are. I was thinking, oh yeah, because my sister is more creative than me because she can illustrate and I feel like she can do beautiful drawings. So I'm like, oh, I'm sort of, but I'm not that. And therefore you see it in such a binary and black and white way as either we are or we aren't. And I think if we can just start with that mindset of going, we all are in our own way. And I think That's one of the things your book does a brilliant job of. It just gives you loads of exercises that just helps you to realise, oh, I am creative. We can we can all do this. And we'll talk a bit more about some of those. The context where I work at Stanford, we have students who are coming to us from all across the university. So we're not just working with design students. We're working with students from the business school, from all kinds of engineering, from the medical school, from the law school even. 
And, you know, every single one of those students has, has the ability to be creative within them. It's also true that many times are sort of, you know, because of those myths or those self-perceptions, like we've sort of arrived, you know, in our classes, we see students saying like, oh, I, I'm in that comparison mode. And there are lots of ways that you can practice really unlocking those creative abilities. The things that I see our students do, they're tackling real world problems, like in education, like in healthcare, and they're using tremendous creativity and they're coming from all of these different disciplinary backgrounds. So again, you know, even though we, we use design and we're, that is a field that's often associated with those people that we, you know, sometimes call creatives, that's mm-hmm. actually not a label that I love, right? Because it perpetuates that division. And that word problem, I think, is a useful one, because I think a lot of your ideas and the different examples are very much grounded in practical problem solving. Because, again, I think if we sometimes think about creativity as this like big abstract idea, we're not sure what that looks like or what that means for us in our day to day jobs. And you give some really good examples that I'd love you to just share with our listeners around almost identifying a problem and then exploring it so much so that you then almost reorganize your life around it or you really think about how can I think creatively, problem solve creatively, act creatively in pursuit of this problem that matters to me and that matters to lots of people and that is worth solving. So how do you help your students like figure out those problems? Because we aren't short of problems. I think we could all think of problems. But again, often those problems feel so unwieldy. And perhaps we also do that thing of letting our inner critic kick in and think, I couldn't possibly solve that problem because it's too hard. Yeah. So we, in our classes, we will often have a partner for a project. And the partner is kind of the organization in the community or a company that has some expertise and, and has been noticing a set of problems over time or needs some help and has asked for some help. And then our students really have the mandate to go in and try to learn as much as they can about the situation and then apply their design abilities and and actually try to figure out like, okay, what is the problem here that we could solve? So one example that I write about in the book is a group of students. And again, they were coming from all over campus. They were two medical students and a public policy student and a civil engineer. They were in one of our classes, which is called Design for Extreme Affordability. And they were partnered with a hospital in South India that is a cardiac care hospital, among other things. They spent this particular hospital was specializing in cardiac surgery. And when the students arrived to do their field work, they come in with this idea that, you know, they were really there to try to help the hospital achieve its mission of very high quality, but low cost healthcare at scale. And so they were thinking along the lines of like efficiency and patient flow. And they thought, oh, we're probably going to design something that's for the administration or maybe for clinicians to help them be more efficient. And when they got there, they noticed a lot of opportunities. But one of the things that was surprising to them was how many people were waiting in the hospital. And they were waiting in the waiting rooms, but they were also waiting in the hallways and outside. And what they learned is that, oh, these are the family members of the patients. And some of them have come from a long distance and they're kind of waiting for the whole duration of the hospital stay. And they really noticed that these family members were undergoing a lot of stress and anxiety. And the students, their empathy was kind of activated and their curiosity was activated. And they left really holding this challenge that they'd experienced, that there was so much anxiety because the family members just didn't know what was going on with their loved one. And they were expressing concern about like, well, how do I take care of this person when they come home? So the students came back and they really 
felt strongly that what they wanted to do was design something actually to help alleviate this suffering of the family members. And what they wound up creating is a whole organization now called Nura Health that provides training and education to family members while they're waiting to be able to be prepared to be basically part of the care team mm -hmm. and you know to know how to practice the right hygiene after somebody has a surgical wound or to take someone's pulse or to watch for signs of infection. That small intervention both really empowers those patients' families and decreases the anxiety, but it also helps reduce the rate of hospital readmissions and post-surgical complications. And so they found actually a way to address a medical need, but in this very human, empathetic approach towards trying to help include the family members as part of the picture of care. And that is just a great example of the way that we set up these projects, which allows the students to basically notice things that are kind of off the menu. That was not a need that the faculty could have predicted would have been what really caught the students' attention. But in partnership with the hospital, they registered, oh, this is actually a real need. No one else is designing for this. What if we could try to alleviate this? And that's actually both the ability to notice but then also the explicit permission to pursue something. We don't know where that's going to lead, right? And that's one of those creative mindsets that you need when you're working on kind of big, challenging, open-ended problems to actually discover something that's novel or discover something that's innovative. And so we've hinted a few times for our listeners at these exercises. Um, so I feel like they'll all now be going, tell us about some of these exercises. Now, there are lots. So there's 81 different things that you can try. I think I've tried four of them so far, but I'd love to hear from you, which are just some of your favourites and some that you'd like to describe to our listeners to give them a flavour for like what they could expect if they read the book. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the assignments that are in the book are drawn directly from our classrooms. So these are real practices that we teach all the time with our students and also with our professional learners who come from all different sectors. I wanted to share a wide range. So there's some in here that you could do on your own. There's some you can do with a team and they all have really different purposes. So one of my favorites that is just such a great way to launch a new group of collaborators is called The Secret Handshake. And the secret handshake is basically where you pair up with someone else in the group and you kind of pretend you do a little bit of improv that when you were in high school together or when you worked at that summer job together, you had a secret handshake because you were such mm -hmm. good friends and you're seeing each other, you know, again, after many years of being apart and immediately you just break into that secret handshake again. And so you take some time and you develop your secret handshake with your partner and then you kind of dissipate and everyone in the room then sort of migrates and finds their partner again and you do your secret handshake. It's just a fun and kind of silly way to bond with someone quite rapidly and to have like a little shared secret between the two of you. <laughs> and that has this very curious effect of creating just a little bit of trust, right? But then all over the room across the workshop or the class or the company, everybody is having that little bonding experience. And it builds a little bit of allyship and a little bit of kinship. And it's also quite playful. And actually, I, I strongly believe that one of the things that like adults need more of is play. And that that is a thing that if we want to have creative workplaces, we actually need to bring a little bit more play into the room and into the mix and in how we relate to each other. So that's a great example of an assignment that just is really about accelerating the bonding process that you need when you're going to get to trust and rapport, which is truly the foundation of good collaboration. So that's one of my favorites. Another one of my favorites is called Solutions Tic-Tac-Toe. And that you could do on your own or you could do with a group. 
But that is really about breaking down kind of the bad habit that many of us have of when we come up with an idea or a solution for something, we often just leap to the first idea that we have. And yet that very first idea that you have, that may not be the best idea. And so solutions tic-tac-toe is a little way to kind of push yourself to explore those less obvious manifestations of your idea. So you may be somebody who like is in a digital environment all the time. And so the first thing you think of is like, okay, I'm going to build an app, right? Or I'm going to build a website. But you might actually benefit from pushing yourself to think about, well, what if that was an in-person service? Or what if that was a physical product? Or what would be the simplest version of that? Or what would be the craziest, most wild expression of that particular idea? And it doesn't mean that you're committing to any one of these different directions, but having the ability to what we call defer judgment while you're still in the speculative phase, when you're still in that messy middle and you're actually trying to preserve lots of different options for yourself, that actually often helps you find that thing that's less obvious or that's actually connecting across multiple different versions of those ideas. And it's very practical too. It's like Mm. kind of a personal brainstorm tool that helps you think in directions that you might not normally be be geared to think in. Is there anything that you find is helpful for people when they are trying to create ideas I think sometimes people are maybe a bit more like me I feel like I'm not very good at coming up with ideas on the spot whereas Helen my co-founder is very good spontaneously if I've got some time to percolate and to think then actually I love coming up with ideas and so I think you get these mixes of approaches how do you suggest if someone listening is at the start of a project or you want to generate ideas is it best to let people do things individually first and then come together do you mix it up Any just suggestions or hints and tips on just managing that kind of mind mapping idea generation process? Well, you really just said the answer, which is people are different. Having that self-awareness and then having that team awareness about what are the conditions under which you thrive and you can actually be at your best in terms of generating ideas and what are the conditions under which Helen generates ideas, those might be two very different things. That might be fun to play in each other's world a little bit and to try both together, but it's really fine to set up a situation in which you ask people to do an individual brainstorm first and then come to the table with some ideas but then to try some practices that are explicitly about building on each other's ideas. And that's a way that you can harness both the kind of individual brilliance and ability for people to kind of go off in interesting different directions, but then also harness the group dynamic, which is really about what happens when, you know, you share something and then I build on that and then someone else builds on that and you get to a a totally different place than any one of us would have gotten to individually. I strongly believe in that mix of approaches being quite important. And I think that the other thing that's sort of implicit is either knowing for yourself, what are those conditions under which you're feel, you know, most free to generate or that helps you suspend judgment, but also explicitly asking somebody to be the person who holds that container, who Mm -hmm. sets up those norms for a group or for individuals and helps you preserve that mentality of deferring judgment or of just being generative. And that can be a rotating role that could be like, okay, I'm the facilitator today. I'm the one who's going to design our small, you know, exercise around solutions, tic-tac-toe or another kind of ideation technique. 
And really the example that you gave around like adopting like, okay, what if this big multinational corporation did it? Or what if this small scrappy startup did it? That's a wonderful example of use invoking constraints, right? Of actually trying to adopt the lens of how some other existing organization might operate. And that's a perfect example of how like a little creative prompting can like help people just focus on designing within those particular constraints for a period of time. And then you move on. And I think that one of the things that often holds us back is like, somehow we think we got to get this right the first time. That is actually a very important idea to let go of. But if you have one hour, instead of just focusing in one mode the whole time, try those different prompts, right? And try them each for 10 minutes and see where you get. And some of them will be really fruitful and some of them won't, but you won't have wasted more than 10 minutes. That again, that, you know, we're back to this sort of theme of play, of holding these things lightly and trying a bunch of different things in that messy zone before you kind of solidify the direction that you're moving. And having someone who's explicitly facilitating that conversation can just let everyone else relax. Let's everybody else be like, oh, I'm just showing up in this generative way. I don't have to worry that we're not gonna get to closure or we're not gonna make a decision by the end of this period. Someone else is responsible for that right now. Yeah, and I think so often we forget that role. I can think of lots of examples where we miss the importance of someone who can help us with that structure and give everybody else sort of the time to think and the space to breathe. And as you say, that's not going to be the same person every time. And I think reassuring people, because some people will find some elements, I think, of creative thinking and problem solving more comfortable than others. There will be some people who really enjoy that generative stage. And I would always be someone who would enjoy that that stage I find the next bit harder you know I find the moving on and the or you've got to make a choice now and you've got to make a decision that's where I get more kind of out of my comfort zone because I get so excited about all the ideas I sort of then struggle to go but oh I really liked that idea and then you know when you end up with Helen and I sometimes describe it as like sometimes we are guilty of like Frankensteining things is the phrase that we use where essentially because I won't let go of something I'll say well we've got this idea oh but I'm just going to add in a bit from this one I'm just going to add in a bit from this but then you lose almost a sense of what was good in the first place because you've just sort of almost adapted it too far I can see how I certainly do that quite a lot and it makes me you know, almost feel quite anxious to go, oh, we've got to let go of these three things I think could be good, though. There's something in them. And any advice for people who you've maybe gone through that kind of idea in the generative bit, and then you're now in the, we need to prototype, as I would think of it. You're either prototyping or you're making something happen. What helps when you get to that stage? Any exercises that you particularly recommend to listeners? Well, I love that you're asking this question because a couple of things come up. So one is what you're describing in terms of that dynamic in many teams, an unexpressed or implicit difference where somebody's still in the exploration mindset and mm. somebody's in the decision-making mindset, that actually is one of those things that creates a lot of discord on teams. And so really figuring out which mode are we in right now? Are we generating or are we selecting and narrowing is very, very helpful to have that vocabulary and to have that awareness. One of the places where people inadvertently wind up kind of editing out a lot of innovation potential is when they're in that idea selection mode. And that can be because they're Frankensteining ideas, or it can be because people pick ideas that they know that they know how to build or are within the current technical capabilities of the team or feel safe, or they can kind of see to the end of the, pro you know, they can kind of like, oh, okay, now I get where mm -hmm. we're going. And that is actually usually, it's way too early to know that with confidence. 
And so what I highly recommend is you think about, let's come up with a rubric before we start that helps us preserve some of that potential. So, and also let's select more than one concept, but not Frankenstein them. Let's keep like three ideas alive until we test and actually get external feedback. So you might have a rubric where you say, we're going to select the one that has what we think is the biggest innovation potential, like the one that would like change our industry if we did it right. We're going to select one that seems most delightful for the people that we're designing for. And I don't know, let's select one that seems like the most likely to generate revenue and preserve those as three different prototypes and move into a testing phase where you're preserving the distinctions between those and you're not trying to meld them and figure out how do you build the the lowest resolution possible prototype so that you again you don't take up too much time but you are then able to get feedback that's external from the team and often that is the thing that will help you like let go of that idea the power of getting that external feedback to help guide how you're moving forward, it just cannot be underestimated. Let's maybe stay on the feedback exercises for a second, because I think I really enjoyed that section. And there's a couple that I picked out. There's one that's called the test of silence and another one called what, so what, what now, which I think both help to give a bit of structure for people, because I think your point on when you really care about something, and then people critique it rather than criticise it. I find critique a bit a bit more positive. It's really hard not to take that personally. And I think that point conceptually about separating yourself from the work, you're like, okay, well, that a bit like where we start, that sounds like a good idea. And then I sort of think, help me, help me with how I might do that so that I don't end up, even though logically and objectively, you know that, when you get hard to hear feedback, that can feel you know, it does permeate and you feel like, oh, I'm not doing a good job. And we know that we all have that negativity bias in our brain that can kick in pretty quickly. So how would you suggest people structure if you're giving that hard to hear feedback? What can help people with structuring that conversation? Yeah, I mean, one thing that you always want to do if you're the giver of the feedback is you want to ask, what kind of feedback do you want? What kind of feedback would be helpful to you right now at this moment in your process? That allows the person who is going to receive the feedback to set some boundaries to, you know, like to actually say like, we're at this stage and I'm really open to any kind of feedback that you have about like, who might the user be? Or they might say, I really want to watch you use this and I'm going to observe and see what I can learn by seeing where it breaks down. Or they might say, you know, I just want feedback on the aesthetics. And that allows you as the feedback giver to say, okay, this person is open to this, but not open to that. And actually it's not going to be helpful if I, right now as the feedback receiver, you actually want to build the muscle to be really open to any feedback that they want to give, but you also have the ability to set some constraints there. And then as the feedback giver practices, I mean, there are just some verbal techniques, like instead of saying, well, I didn't like it when you did the blah, 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 to be able to say this app breaks when I try to do this, right? Make it about the work rather than about the person or the flow of this information is really confusing rather than when you wrote it this way, I just couldn't follow. And literally taking the person out of it and just talking about the work, it helps if you're feeling like you're on the same side of the table as the person who made it right. And you're actually both viewing it objectively. And then the the example that you gave from the book, The Test of Silence, is like Mm. a brilliant way as the maker that you can try to put some distance between yourself and the thing that you're testing. Really, the purpose of the feedback or of testing is to understand what is the current gap between the way that you intended for something to land and the way it's actually landing. 
And you want to know as much as you can about that gap. And that doesn't mean you're going to resolve it for absolutely every single different variation of concern or issue, but it really allows you to see, well, what's going to happen when I'm not there? Is this thing singing? Is it shining? Do people really immediately resonate with it? How do they use it? And so the test of silence is simply a practice where you create an opportunity for someone to go through a wireframe or test out something. You know, you could sit and, and watch someone look at that Instagram story and see how they're reacting to it. But the thing you're not allowed to do is to explain what it's supposed to be. And literally, you know, thinking about like, what would it be if you put a clothespin on your mouth and you just didn't allow yourself to over explain it, then you get to explain it at the end, but you want to first have the person really react without you biasing the kind of feedback that they're going to give you. And that's just a wonderful practice and quite practical for testing anything. And there were a couple of other exercises so that we've had a go at that I thought we would also share with our listeners. So the first one, me and my sister did while we were on holiday together. So I got this book and we're sitting on the sofa and she was like, what are you doing? That was quite a big book because it's quite a big book. And I was like showing her some of the lovely illustrations in it. I said, oh, let's have a go at this one together. And we did the, it's called the Blind Contour Bookend. Do you just want to explain to our listeners what that is? Yeah, so the Blind Contour uh, bookend, it actually comes from a long tradition that comes out of the arts uh, called Blind Contour Portraits. This is a practice in which you do a 60-second portrait of someone else, and the key is you look at their face, but you are not allowed to look down at your paper, and you're not supposed to take your pen off the paper. So what's happening is you are resisting that deep urge that we have to check our work as we're going along. And of course, what you produce is not going to be like a quote, accurate portrait, but the practice is really about listening to like, what's that voice in your head saying that's like urging you to look down and check, did I get the eye in the right place? Is the hair looking crazy or is it looking, you know, right? And it's a way to actually investigate your own relationship to your inner critic and to understand what's stopping you from getting into that purely generative mode that we talked about earlier, where you want to separate the judgment and the critique from the act of generating something. Sarah, we've talked about loads of different things today, but we always end our podcast interviews with the same question, which is I'd love to know from you one piece of career advice that you would share with our listeners. This can be advice that somebody has given you that has just really stuck with you or just some words of wisdom that you can share with our listeners to learn from. Well, I want to share a piece of advice that I received very early in my career from one of my earliest bosses. Um, Her name is Joan Coombs. And she told me once that she had had a long career in healthcare and advocacy. And she said, you know, the biggest mistakes that I've made over time are when I either moved too fast or too slow. And I thought that was really powerful and has really stayed with me. I probably think about that like at least once a week, right? Am I trying to push something too fast? Or am I not recognizing that this is the moment where change is possible or where something important is needed and I'm moving too slow? And I think there's something just brilliant about the attention to pacing and timing. It's kind of this like invisible ingredient in any kind of work that, but I don't think we often think about that, you know, as leaders or as people creating things or just at work in general. So that piece of advice I would pass on to everyone. Are you moving too fast? Are you moving too slow? And kind of what are the consequences potentially of that? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoy listening to Sarah and spending time in her world as much as I did. Her perspectives and insights have really stayed with me since our conversation, particularly her points of view and exercises on feedback. It's something I've thought about a lot and I'm sure her work and her book is something I'm going to keep coming back to. As we're getting towards the end of the year, if this has been on your to-do list for a while, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you maybe bump us up your list or spend five minutes at the end of the day giving us a review or a rating or maybe even just sharing our podcast with someone who you think might enjoy it. Sharing Squiggly is how we continue to do the work that we do. We always really appreciate it. And those reviews in particular are our favourite moments of the week. Each time we get a new review, we really, we love sharing it with each other and it just gives us that tiny bit of glow, which makes us keep going and keep growing. And coming up for our final episode of the year of 2021, appreciate some people, lots of people don't listen to our podcasts in the order we release them. But the last one in 2021 is all going to be about focusing on curious career questions that you can ask yourself to press pause for a moment, increase your self-awareness and just reflect a bit on your year. It's deep and meaningful episode, but equally at the same time, I hope it's lots of fun to listen to as essentially you're going to hear Helen and I doing our own end of year reviews which we hadn't talked about before live on the podcast so that might be something to look forward to but thanks again for listening and we'll be back with you again soon Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.